welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. I'm your host, Charlie Yu, and every week I talk to an exceptional data scientist, AI researcher, software engineer, or anyone else who can help us bring cutting-edge research out of the lab and into products that people love. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout-out to Effective Altruism and the Giving What We Can pledge. I'm not getting paid to say this. I think these ideas are so important that I want to get the message out. If you're listening to this podcast, most likely you are well into the 1% in the world. By pledging to donate just a small fraction of your income to the most effective charities, you can save the lives of dozens of people living in extreme poverty, reduce unnecessary suffering in factory farms, and improve the long-term future of humanity. Join over 4,900 people who have pledged to donate over $1.8 billion over their lifetimes by going to givingwhatwecan.org. Before I introduce today's guest, a quick announcement. One of the interesting things to come out of producing these episodes so far is that every single guest uses Twitter to keep up with the latest machine learning research and to follow the most important people in the field. And while I am generally hesitant to use any sort of social media, when a bunch of smart people all tell you to do the exact same thing, you should probably do it. So I'm going to follow my own advice on this one, and I have started a Twitter account. So you can follow me at Charlie U, you spelled the normal way, Charlie U AI. And I'll be posting highlights from the podcast. So I record the video of both me and my guest, as well as posting things that I've learned on the job and things that I've learned from doing these interviews. So again, that is Charlie U AI. I hope to see you there. One of the recurring themes on this podcast so far has been what the future of tools for ML engineering will look like. And that's why today I'm especially excited to be speaking with our guest, someone who is currently building one of those foundational tools. He was previously a machine learning engineer at Spotify, researching and applying algorithms for music information retrieval, while also pursuing a PhD in Music Informatics at City University of London. Please welcome Andreas Janssen. Andreas, welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Yeah, and great to have you. It's music information retrieval. While I actually hadn't heard of the official field before, it's something that I'd actually tried to do a side project on before and found out exactly how difficult a field it was, especially with machine learning. Yeah, someone posted on Hacker News yesterday, there was a score following algorithm. So it takes a, a piece of score and then it aligns the MIDI file to it. And people just said, this doesn't seem too difficult. Why don't you just do an, a, a forced fa for, fast Fourier transform and just align them? And then someone replied and said, actually, it's really hard because 
the way people play music, it's not strict to the time at all. So even if you try to do a, a, a dynamic time warping or something, you end up with a bunch of problems. Recognizing the notes is actually quite hard because they the overtones all overlap in, in the spectral space. And there's a lot of hard problems in there. And it's quite a small field. Maybe three, four hundred people come to the yearly conference that we all go to. But some really interesting things come out of it. All of the auto-tuning research came out of this space that re redefined how music sounds nowadays. And the stuff that I was working on, source separation, is also starting to make its way into products like DJ apps, where you can mix the bass from one track with the vocals from another track and things like that. So it's it's starting to get some mainstream traction. It's actually starting to work as well now, because that's been a problem for a long time. It's been, it hasn't really sounded very good. and But now the the technology is catching up with the ideas that's nice yeah it and you started out as a music studying music production and audio engineering right you weren't a developer right from the start no it's i started programming when i was 12 i think on an old amiga oh, wow. and uh, but i never thought it could be a job i always thought like programming that's like a fun little hobby um, and making games and stuff so I, I went into i studied folk music in high school actually in sweden for three years i learned to play accordion and guitar and old folk tunes and then when i was doing that i started audio engineering and just recording all my friends in school and then i went in to study that and then i realized that the audio engineering field is it's really hard to get a job in audio engineering at the moment because there's just so many people who do it and there's so many so few studios that are still around. And then I thought I've been programming for fun all along. Uh, maybe there's some jobs in programming. Um, so then I went and got a CS degree in London. And then after one year of that, I got a job. And then I kept doing my degree part time and, and working four days a week and studying one day a week. So turns out there's quite a lot of work in software engineering at the moment. And yeah, but I'm like still recording at home and stuff just for fun. But but it was it's also been really nice to be able to combine that sort of audio and music side with the computer side through this music informatics field. So yeah, it's, it's the best of both, both worlds, really. Mm -hmm. And where did machine learning start to come into the picture? It was my last year in my undergrad, my supervisor for my final year project, he was in this field and we became friends and we were talking about submitting something to this conference, a little competition they do every year there on key recognition specifically. So I built a little, just simple little algorithm and we actually got in third place in that um, competition and that just got me excited about maybe there's something in here and he asked me to join him for a part-time PhD. So I started studying with him at City University and just did that part-time for seven years. So it was a real sort of long stretch project that it's I defended in January. I still haven't got my corrections back, but hopefully it'll, it's all going to be okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it will. Judging by all the research that you've been doing with machine learning at Spotify, uh, these are some super interesting papers. So for listeners who don't have much of a much context on music information retrieval as a field, can you Give a broad overview of what types of tasks are there and what are some of the practical applications that you think are really exciting? Yeah, it's a really broad field. So it's it's combining music cognition research in all the way from psychology, understanding how we process music that comes into our brains. 
through symbolic music information retrieval where we deal with notes and scores and stuff like that down to the audio level where we de- deal with the raw waveforms and and it can be machine learning or not machine learning so a lot of the older systems they they were doing things like clustering sets of scores to figure out like these scores probably come from the same region in in folk music for example Recently, it's moved more and more towards the audio domain, just because now we have computers that are fast enough to process all of this vast amounts of music. But it's, yeah, it's a really broad field. The stuff that I was mostly interested in was source separation. So given a song with some instruments in it, say it's bass, guitar, uh, vocals, drums, being able to separate that into the separate four separate tracks just from that multi-track recording automatically. There's a lot of other really interesting things. I'm interested in also in chord recognition, recognizing automatically what chords happen in the song. And if you know that, maybe you can make some more informed recommendations about what type of music people want to listen to that they haven't heard before. Uh, so that's something that I was doing a little bit at Spotify. Just being able to understand, being able to build a computer system that understands music and listens to music as well as humans listen to music. That's the ultimate goal of music information retrieval. And so that encompasses all of these things at all of these different levels of abstraction. Mm -hmm. And in other fields like NLP, we've seen how the biggest breakthroughs that we've seen in the past year, of course, GPT-3 and BERT, that was, like you said, they they were taking advantage of the web scale, all the information that you can have your model listen to unsupervised, and then from there be able to have an understanding and a base from which you can build upon how close are we to a generative, like a general generative model in music? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. The WaveNet that came out, was it three years ago now? That was a big yeah. breakthrough. And really interesting as well, because before then, most of the stuff we'd been doing was in the spectral, in the time frequency domain. So you do a, a fast Fourier transform on the audio signal. So you're not operating on the raw samples anymore. You're operating on things that are a certain frequency and happen at a certain time. And we thought that was a better representation of music because it's you can look at this as a picture and you can see, okay, there's a melody that goes like that. You can visually understand it. But then WaveNet did everything on the raw audio samples. And that, that was a fairly new. People had been doing something like that before, but not getting such good results. And that sounds pretty good good on at least for um, speech and piano single instrument generation it's i think we are not there yet if we try to generate mixture of multiple instruments and i think that's just because the distributions there are so all over the place and it's the computer in order in order to do that it would have to first understand what music what instruments happen how do they normally play together what, what kind of effects are you trying to produce when you play the piano to a a vocalist compared to playing the piano with the violinist or something there's different styles of playing in different genres so the space of things that is like valid music is enormous and i think yeah we're not quite there yet with just full-on music generation and honestly i don't know if it's really a an interesting 
goal either because there are so many musicians who make really interesting music and it's i think it's more interesting to look at how do we take what the music that they're producing and maybe build tools for them so that they can get to that sound they want faster maybe through automatic mixing and automatic mastering maybe like making a little choir arrangement automatically if that's not something that you're comfortable doing but the creativity still has to come from humans i think but then we can build tools that that make it easier to reach your creative vision yeah that's really interesting especially because some of the tools that i use for creating this podcast actually are ml based the isotope suite of plugins are like far and away the best things that i had found and my audio engineer had found for reducing noise and taking out all the unwanted artifacts and even doing having a pretty good baseline for removing some parts of the like room echo and things like that so it's yeah it's super interesting just all the breakthroughs that are happening on audio in general not only music as well yeah for sure yeah that, and that's also a surprisingly hard problem just removing noise you think that's just a that's just like a static thing that you just identify the the frequencies of those static noises and and you just pull them out but then you invariably start changing the sound of the voice as you're re- reducing things so it has to be like a pretty smart system for that to work seamlessly with because our ears are so susceptible to little things that don't sound right just like when you when you play video games it's much more important that the audio is is correct without glitches than it is for the video to to be seamless so when you're working with audio for that to be at that sort of production quality it, it, the algorithms need to be really good mm-hmm. and to dig in a little bit on your research at spotify in the vocal and instrumental separation. So you had a a first paper on that back in 2017, 2018, and then a more recent one last year. And you were saying before about how WaveNet was using the raw audio instead of the spectrograms. Is there a reason why it is pretty uncommon in the rest of MIR to not use the raw audio and instead just use the spectrograms given WaveNet success? Yeah, it's a good question. So I was using the spectrograms as well. And my first paper on source separation, I took a method from bioinformatics um, segmentation of brain scans, where they have these uh, pictures of brain scans, just black and white pictures, and then they try to segment different regions of, of the the brain and the components in there uh, and they use a unit architecture that is this sort of convolutional encoder decoder with skip connections between the the layers of the same um, size so that the lowest layers are connected to the highest layers and then the second lowest are connected to second highest and so on and the benefit of that over just the normal encoder decoder architecture is that you tend to get more of the fine-grained information from the original image seeping into the very highly affected output image. And that I thought that would work pretty well for um, music audio source separation because we, we care so much about these little details that I talked about before. If you hear any small glitches, they're very audible. So trying to, to preserve as much of that as possible was important. And that's working with convolutional networks on 2D input matrices, essentially images. So that fits 
really nicely with a spectrogram, which is also just a 2D image of, you can see it as a 2D image that represents the, the audio content. And some other papers have borrowed other things from image recognition into music and um, audio research. And I think the reason there is just that the image community is much bigger. There's been bigger sort of leaps with deep learning in those fields. It's not a perfect analogy because in a spectrogram, without sort of diving too deeply into the details here, but in a spectrogram, what you have is you have a fundamental frequency which is the root note of the sound that you're producing. And then you have overtones that are multiples of that fundamental frequency. And depending on where those overtones are and how strong they are, that's what produces different timbres and different sounds. So what you get, if you take a spectrogram, you very clearly see the fundamental frequency is a very bright line, usually if it's a straight note. And then a little bit above it, you see a slightly fainter line and further up. But in a convolution, you only look at the very local region. So you're not gonna you're not gonna recognize that fundamental frequency is the same is the fundamental frequency of those overtones that happen further away because we operate on such small um kernels in the convolution. So it's not a perfect it doesn't fit perfectly with music, but it's it fits it works well enough. And I think some people are working on translate or coming up with new things like convolutions that work more with music and audio that take into account these overtones. But on the time domain, there wasn't really anything before WaveNet that was that fits that well with music, because with music, you have to take into a lot of stuff into account. Even if you're working on a low resolution, you're still looking at maybe 10 to 20,000 samples per second. And in music, the thing that happens now is dependent on the thing that happened 10, 20 seconds ago, maybe even a minute ago, if you're trying to get real structural information in there. So if you just take the naive approach, maybe of just taking a a kernel of five, six samples on the time domain, that's useless because that's just a tiny little, you know, glitch, you, you barely hear it. But what WaveNet did really cleverly was that they they did this dilated convolution where they looked at things at different timescales, at different levels of, of the stack of convolutional kernels. But it's also quite slow to do inference with that because it's a causal model. So you have to evaluate everything up to step N and then to get N plus one, you have to just do a full new evaluation. And so it's very slow at inference time. And yeah, we ended up using the more traditional spectral approach, even though I think WaveNet had been released when we wrote our paper. Still, it felt like there were still things to do on the spectral domain. I still think there is stuff to do on the spectral domain. One paper that we didn't actually get published, I think we're going to put it up on the archive soon, even though it's the paper is maybe half a year old now, it's more than a year old, actually, where we do source separation with the spectrogram, but in the complex domain. So instead of just looking at the um, absolute values of this, maybe I'm going into too deep into this No, no, keep going. (laughs) So normally when you work with spectrograms, you throw away the phase information. So you're only using the amplitudes of each of these time frequency components. And that has the most information, but there is clearly stuff in the phase um, of the waveform as well. If it's out of phase, that probably means that might not be the same instrument if it's not in the same phase as the other instrument and so on. 
Uh, so we did some work on that as well. So there's still stuff to be done on spectrograms for audio and music. Very long answer to your question. <laughs> no, that's great. That's great. I, the audience is very technical people who uh, love digging into the details, at least the people, at least the ones that I actually have talked to. So yeah, this is great. That's interesting that you say that there's more work to be done on the spectral domain, given that, like you said, there's We've seen the rise of transformer models in general, which are, of course, able to have those longer range attention. So maybe I'm imagining some sort of solution on applying transformers to spe- uh, to those spectrograms that can take into account the overtones as well as the as well as like longer range dependencies inside of or across the time domain because it's able to. Of course, and it would be a lot faster as well because your uh, transformer, of course, is much more parallelizable than, uh, like you said, the causal model that WaveNet was. I don't know if you have any uh, thoughts on that. I haven't seen any. There might be some papers written. I haven't seen any papers on that for music or audio yet, but I think that's a really interesting idea. And that sort of direction is if I would continue my PhD for another seven years, that's the sort of thing that I would be looking into. How do you make um, these sort of modules, reusable components that actually understand music and things that, you know, audio, what's the analogy in the audio world of the sort of the edge that you started to detect automatically with these early neural networks, those papers that basically said we have uh, thrown away feature engineering now the model does it itself and it finds these things that make sense when you look at them i don't think we have anything really that makes sense on that level when you listen to them where it finds these basic structures or basic sort of audio events and stacks them at a greater and greater level of detail but maybe something like a transformer model would be able to do something like that sounds yeah that that's that would be really interesting research mm-hmm. do you have a sense of because you said before it was uh, music information retrieval and audio ml and audio generally seems to not be that large of a field how many researchers do you think are studying compared to say cv and nlp do you have an, a sense of how what the order of magnitude difference would be Oh, yeah, it's a good question. Say we have maybe three, four hundred people who go to Izmir, which is the MIR, biggest MIR conference during the year. And how many people go to CVPR? Is it a couple of thousand, three, four thousand maybe? I don't know the exact orders of magnitude there. But there's obviously a lot more uh, funding in visual domains than it is in music. But audio is, is also getting a fair amount of funding. So I guess that's the deciding factor, really. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. What would you envision some of the practical applications that you're most excited about in terms of both music and for audio in general, following on from the research that you've done? I Like I said before, I think creative tools are more interesting than just purely generative things. Being able to, basically, as a musician, what I want to do is I have an idea, I have a little melody or a little sort of soundscape in my head, and how quickly can I get that into my audio editor? So that could be something like recording my own voice. I have a terrible singing voice. 
but applying things like autotune, but also what's the, how do I make my voice sound more like my favorite singer? Maybe there's some style transfer you can do there to change the, the formats and timbre of my voice. Same with playing instruments. How can you get like a really creative 15 year old who has a lot of musical ideas, but isn't that good at just playing their, their instrument to play more in time and maybe play some licks that they weren't able to play by themselves, but maybe they can have an intuitive interface that makes them sound more like their favorite guitarist and things like that to allow creativity to flow without the limitations of just your physical abilities to, to play music. Even though there's, there's a lot to be said for, for actually practicing and, and learning an instrument. But I think there are people who are very creative who aren't that technically good at playing. And allowing that through these sort of style transfer things or maybe helping them guide guided composition, computer guided composition. It's a really interesting field as well, where you um, put in maybe a chord progression and then you have an idea for a little melody and then it suggests where to go next based on a certain genre you're interested in. And things like th those sort of creative tools, I think, are really interested, interesting. But also in the recommendation space, I think there's a ton you can do there. I remember when I joined Spotify, I came in from the Echo Nest in Boston after we got acquired by Spotify. And we did some experiments where we, using the, the technology we had back then to make a radio session based on just the sound of the songs. So disregarding the cultural context and disregarding popularity and all of those things. Just can you find songs that sound similar enough to, to the song that you're listening to? and make a, a coherent um, set of songs from that. And obviously it didn't work at all. Cult the cultural context is more important than the sound, I think. But I would love to do that test again now, or I'm not there anymore, but I would love if they did that test again to, to see like how far have we come now in understanding the sound of the music? Can we actually understand the style of guitar playing? If it's a sort of a jangly, the Smiths style guitar, then I probably want to hear other music with that style of guitar playing, even though I haven't listened to anything like that in, by that band before, maybe. So I think there are a lot of signals in the audio signal that you could use to to just make better recommendations and, and suggest better music to people. Yeah, it's super interesting, uh, especially going back to what you said before about how the human ear is so discerning, whereas with pictures we've seen, we've seen things produced by GANs. And if you look, if you're like far away enough, it look it looks pretty good. Then when you dig into the details, you're, you realize that your eyes are fooling you where it's filling in the gaps and that, doesn't really seem to be happening with our brains in audio. And of course, be recommending music in general is really hard. I've stopped giving recommendations completely because I realize how bad I am at it. <laughs> yeah, it strikes me as just a hard problem, a very hard problem, uh, even for humans as well. Yeah. And obviously the safe thing is to just recommend things that people have already heard before or things that are generally popular. But I think it's a shame. I think there's a lot of music on these platforms that that are made by people in their basements with no audience whatsoever who aren't very good at promoting themselves but are just creative geniuses and the only way to really get those people exposed is by looking at the audio content itself because there are no cultural signals and there are no sort of popularity signals for those people 
Yeah, it reminds me of that. There was a great documentary on Dr. Dre on in HBO. It was like a six part series, and they fe- feature the moment where he discovered Eminem, where he heard one song from him, and it was like, "This guy is going to be." A future star and he picked him up groomed him they recorded a session right there as he flew him out and that obviously there's there is something there in terms of taste making and how he knew that this guy was going to be the one who's going to make it but and that was all again like you said there were no popularity signals it was just from hearing what he had mm. yeah exactly but that recording the eminem recording still made its way to dr dre somehow and if you are some random teenager in a wood cabin in you know Sweden or something, you probably don't have those connections that would make it to Dr. Dre in the first place. So I think by using um, machine learning, this is one of those things where machine learning can actually have a really positive impact on the world, I think, is by allowing those people to, to get heard by those tastemakers who can make or break artists and get them out on the platforms and give them the audience that they, that actually exists somewhere else in the world. Maybe there's a, a person in Puerto Rico who, who would love that weird music from that guy in Sweden, but they would never find each other. The artists would never find the audience without these sort of tools, I think. Yeah, and of course, we've recently gotten... And not in terms of research, but the rise of TikTok, which is a pure recommendation platform for short videos. So maybe there is some sort of uh, some big future big company that's going to be built on just yeah pure recommendation system based on just those signals. So we'll see. Yeah, so, yeah, very interesting. Very future ahead of us here. Mm-hmm. To start to switch gears a little bit into more of your current work with building tools for machine engineering. You were a machine learning engineer at Spotify, so you weren't only involved in the research. What were some of your takeaways in terms of biggest learnings and observations that you've made with the challenges involved in putting machine learning into production at a larger company that's using it as a core part of what they do? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So when I started Programming professionally, I was working, this was maybe 13 years ago now, I was working as a PHP developer for a little web agency in London. We were making e-commerce websites for various companies and we would deploy things by SSHing into the, or actually some machines we SSHed into some machines we just FTP'd a file up to. When we joined the company, we got an email with just a shell script that you in the middle of the email that was like after you do this step restart the server and then you do this following step copy paste these following steps and then after half an hour you have a production machine ready to be deployed and you would go in and restart apache once you've uploaded the code and we used version control for most of the projects svn But it was just this really janky process. And then through my career, I've I've seen continuous integration and Puppet and things like that to manage uh, servers. You don't have to manually go in and and fiddle around on on the machines anymore. Uh, Docker, all of these tools that make it. It's not, I wouldn't say it's like easy or an enjoyable experience to do sysadmin type work, but it's definitely better than it was when I started. And then coming into uh, doing machine learning and, and deep learning and things like that and 
And now again, you are spinning up a machine, you um, install the CUDA drivers, you restart the computer after maybe you have to fiddle with some, what is it, and uh, the NVIDIA settings and the Novo or whatever it's called. And, and you have to, you, you end up having this shell script in a file somewhere that you yeah, send all around. Yeah, the math libraries friend. as well. Yeah, exactly, those. exactly. <laughs> So you end up with this very sort of pristine machine that you've configured so that it'll work with deep learning. And then you sit and write your code locally, and then you just make sure that it just hangs together end to end. But then you SSH, SCP that code up to the remote machine. Maybe you have a little rsync script or something. SSH into that machine, and then you start training maybe you have to edit some files on that remote machine because something broke when you ran it on the GPU or something and you have to copy those files. But it's it feels like going back in time 13 years to being a PHP developer at a web agency. And there are a lot of things, I think, that can be improved in that process. I think people, the team I was on, extremely good smart people we spent i don't know how often you just looked at the person next to you and you saw this sort of almost like giving up kind of thing in their eyes where they're just i have no idea what's going on i'm getting some cuda trace back here i don't know what's happening and then you have to spend you lose all of your momentum and you spend half a day just debugging some weird gpu thing so yeah it's we're at the quite like the algorithms, when they work, it's amazing what they can do. But to get there is a really frustrating journey at the moment, I feel like. Yeah, definitely. One of the probably most, one of those moments that I had of where, like you said, you just give up. You're like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. It was so good. And then it was so, now it's so bad where it was where I I trained like this super good model. And at the time, the company we're working at, they, it was, we were doing some, shared because like they wanted to take advantage of the time of the savings when you reserve instances so they had they kept them running as much as possible and i had a really good model that was working it was reporting like you said i was r-syncing the training stats back to where to back to my local computer and i was like oh wow the training is going amazing and then the next day I come in and find out that machine had accidentally been overwritten by someone else who was trying to use it. Uh, and every all that work was now gone. And of course, I only had the stats. And of course, I was also not versioning anything in all of this. And so it was about a week's worth of modeling work, all completely gone. So yeah, and, like and, you said, yeah. it does seem like we're five years plus uh, behind the times exactly and when you do that like i've done that too or i've trained a model uh, and it's been training for a week and in that time i've been on my local machine <clears throat> updating the code and then by the time the model is trained i've forgotten to commit that initial thing that actually worked and then i have no idea what i changed to get that model and i can't reproduce it anymore and then you just feel really stupid and you feel like you've made a mistake and you're bad at your job. But actually, I think it's, I don't think we should be so hard on ourselves. I've been talking to a lot of machine learning people this year, sort of asking them about how they do their work. And there's a lot of apologies 
People say things like, yeah, I don't commit enough to Git or I don't, I don't have enough tests or uh, this things, even things on the math is on the more sort of modeling machine learning side, whereas I accidentally evaluated on my training set. And there's so many ways to, to shoot yourself in the foot. And there used to be at least as many ways to shoot in yourself in the foot with normal software engineering, but we've put some guardrails up and mitigated the, the worst ways you can shoot yourself in the foot. And the, but that's just not the case yet for machine learning. So I think people should be less hard on themselves and just realize that this this is largely a tooling problem. Yeah, exactly. It reminds me of one of many times where I'm debugging a model, and this, of course, would have been made much easier if I had just simply written tests. And it is funny that you bring up how when you talk to these people, they are apologizing because they know that these practices are, that they should be doing all these things, but it is just so much overhead in terms of the tools just not being there. You have to track things inside of a spreadsheet, even on Replicate's website, which we'll get to in a minute. It says, throw away your spreadsheet. And that is a perfect headline because it's so funny that I don't think anyone explicitly told all these data scientists to use a like just a normal Excel spreadsheet to track things, but that's what everyone ends up doing because there is no other solution. Yeah, it's the state of the art. The spreadsheet is really straight to the state of the art. So for the, like you say, the, the spreadsheet at the moment does seem to be the, the state of the art. So to transition to what you're building right now, what is a, how do you imagine the future of this tooling? What do you imagine that should be like? How we, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that in general? Do you mean the, the tool that we're building or in general, what machine learning should be like? Sure, we can start with the broad picture of what would the ideal tool chain look like? We have a, at this point, like you said, software engineering has really come a long way in terms of being proactive instead of reactive, having things that are completely reproducible. What do you think that looks like for machine learning engineering? Yeah, there's, there's so many angles to this. I would love to be able to uh, read a paper on the archive and then just download the model and run some inferences myself. Things like that should just exist, just like when someone publishes a new, uh, what's a good example from, a, a new database or something, and you just download that database, you just run it, and you put some data into it, and you can play around with API. You should be able to use any, at least these more, what's the word, like application-focused machine learning algorithms, like the latest segmentation model, just as easily as you can run a, a scikit-learn model. That's one thing I think that's missing being able to just workflow wise being able to work on a model locally and then just press a button and it's trained somewhere and that the thing that worked locally is going to work remotely and that to get that sort of iteration cycle faster i think that's one of the, my biggest problems with machine learning now is that you you spend so much time just shuffling code up to remote servers and waiting for experiments to finish. That's a harder thing. I don't, I don't really know how to predict whether a model is going to be good enough just based on a small set of data. But maybe there is some. There have been some papers that try to predict the performance of a, on a larger data set based on a smaller data set. Maybe there's some stuff we can do there. 
debugging as well, I think is a, is a really big issue right now. If something goes wrong, if, if the thing doesn't converge like you expect it to, it's this is just you have to rely on your own intuition and the knowledge that you've amassed through all of the failures of, of your own modeling process over the years to have some idea of, okay, maybe this, I don't know, maybe I should disable batch norm on the decoder or something. These just sort of magical things that people know, but it's not codified anywhere. And it's really hard to like, how do you even ask a question about this on Stack Overflow, right? How, if my model doesn't converge, what's, what is a good Stack Overflow question for that uh, problem? And a lot of it, I think, comes down to just, just leaky abstractions all the way down. You have to, in order to be an effective machine learning engineer, you not only have to know the maths and the sort of the latest trends in how we build these networks and how we connect these components, but you also need to know all the way down to the GPU level. Like, how do I have a bottleneck in the way that uh, my GPU is shuffling memory between the GPUs or there are so many sort of things that leak into each other. It's that paper, the high interest machine learning is the high interest credit card or whatever. I can't remember the name of that paper from Google from a few years ago. Yeah, hidden uh, technical debt, hidden, machine learning yeah, systems. Exactly. Great paper. And I think the stuff that they talk about is still true. So being able to have solid abstractions for as many of these things as possible, maybe we even need a better programming environment i think the way that we write these models is quite janky the fact that we don't have type safety for the shapes of our tensors maybe swift is the answer there i don't know but this yeah i don't know it's this could just go on forever i feel like there's so many small and big things that are broken i would like machine learning to feel like writing just normal software in a typed language where you can write a test and it you, within a few seconds that the thing works and you can reason about things without knowing all the all of the underlying details and you can ask questions on stack overflow and we have just like a language of explaining these things to each other that allows the knowledge to be shared and not just be stored in our own individual brains but how to get there that's that's the hard question yeah, I really like how you bring up the the fundamental problem in in many cases of there just being leaky abstractions as in you can't necessarily trust that something was done exactly how you need it to be because there aren't those clear interfaces of of if this that if this is according to this interface then we can just plug it in and it will work. Now we're seeing a few of those for example you have a you have data specifications, uh, which are validated with some sort of data testing. So that would be an example of a more clean interface. Mm. But what do you think you're building a version control tool for, for models and possibly for data? That was something that you also mentioned. Why did you choose to work on this problem specifically instead of all of the other things that, <laughs> that you identified? Yeah, we did actually work on a lot of these other things as well. It's a funny story. So me and Ben, my my co-founder, we worked together in London 10 years ago, almost now, um, on a little music startup called This Is My Jam. That was the best music app ever created. Unfortunately, it's, it never really took off. 
And then we did some separate things. And then we went, we stayed friends and we went on holiday together to Greece one year and sat by the swimming pool and tried to just read some academic papers as you do by the swimming pool on our phones. <laughs> and we realized that, yeah, I can't read this. I can't like squint on this little PDF on my phone. So then we pulled up our laptops and we built this thing called Archive Vanity that that turns the latex that people pu publish on the archive into HTML. So then we could actually sit by the pool and read papers as HTML. And uh, through that project, we started thinking more about maybe a lot of the things that I'm struggling with at Spotify are tooling problems. I quit Spotify and Ben and I started working on a... The first thing that we built was actually a CI system for machine learning. And this was trying to address that problem of people publishing papers. Maybe they publish papers with code, but even with code, it's quite hard to just take a model that someone published and run an inference on your own data. So we wanted to incentivize that by creating a CI system where people could upload a trained model in a specified format, like a standardized model format, and then we would build that into sort of a Docker container, and then you could just download that container and run that model on your own data. And the CI part of this was that we would then run your pre-trained model against some standard test set, maybe the ImageNet test set or something. As we were building that, we realized that serving these models, so we wanted this to, the CI system would spin up this model as an HTTP server, and then throw a bunch of data at it. And that was quite hard to build. We ended up building quite big sort of Kubernetes stack for batch inference. And then we realized that maybe this is the problem. So we stepped down one level from that CI system to the actual serving platform. So we ended up working on that for a while. But then as we were building the serving platform, we realized that how are people actually going to get their models into this standardized format? There's this process of training and then repackaging it into this format so that it works in this inference platform. And then we went down one level more to a training platform. And as we were doing that, we uh, realized that how do, well, how do you actually keep track of your metrics and parameters and everything during training? And my own memories of working at Spotify and not, not using Git to keep track of my work as much as I felt that I should be doing. And then we landed in this version control system that is, there are things below this level of abstraction as well that, that we have been thinking about, but I don't think we want to go down to building a better tensor flow or something. I think that seems really hard, but this is the thing that is, it feels good because it's quite a relatively small tool. And I think we want to keep it quite small as well in scope. But it's clearly a problem when most people we talk to say that they keep track of things in spreadsheets and don't always commit their code. Instead, they have some folder on S3 that has like a, a long name with all of the hyperparameters squashed into that file name, something I used to do as well. And yeah, so we, we thought that we'll start here and we'll make a version control system to get at least one sort of solid piece of abstraction in the stack. And then maybe from there, we'll, we'll build some other tools to maybe do something that helps you spin up these machines or get the code up in a easier way or some other thing with reproducibility, making sure that 
that the model can be reproduced on different types of data sets or that we have a bunch of different ideas for just general reproducibility through tooling but but now we are working on this uh, version control system the design principles of this was that we wanted to let people work um the way they worked before without having to change the workflow too much we're, we're not trying to be very opinionated and we're also trying to be very sort of small and self-contained in this process so re- what replicate does is it doesn't do a lot actually it is it's a little python library that you import and then you say start this experiment give it this path to your local directory so it it'll save all of those files that you have the the code that you use to build your model kind of as a snapshot as a, almost like a backup system so that that you can always go back to the exact code that produced the model we also keep track of the automatically keep track of python dependencies and then you add whatever parameters that you some metadata for this model and then we stick that in a json file in a fi- in a folder on s3 or gcs or your local file system that's configurable that is given a specific id that uniquely identifies this experiment and then as you're training we have a the second function that you use when you're training a model is a checkpointing function where you say checkpoint this model file along with these metrics and that also gets saved alongside this experiment on this bucket so it's just automating that little shell script that i used to have at spotify that i think a lot of other people have as well in just in a way that's not too opinionated and pretty general we don't go into the framework level or anything we just say whatever files you tell us to save and whatever um, hyperparameters and metrics you want to keep track of and that's just to to keep track of your work and then we also have some tools that let you then look at what you did so we have a command line tool that lets you list your experiments to see the metrics and the hyperparameters you can similar to git you can check out particular checkpoints from experiments to go back in time to a specific point of your training pipeline so you know that everything you did everything that the training did was tracked automatically for you one thing that i'm excited about that we recently added is a python api for inspecting what you did so you can load metrics and parameters in a notebook and you can plot all of your experiments just like in tensorboard except this is like a programmable tensorboard i used to try to parse tensorboard logs in order to do this kind of analysis myself and that's pretty hairy so we have this sort of tool that allows you to do a meta analysis on your experiments and your results you can check out model files from within python and do inference on a specific point of training at a specific checkpoint you can see what if i throw in some new data what does it classify that data as at that that particular point of that particular experiment so it's a way to with very little overhead just get that sort of safety that you're keeping track of all of the work you're doing and it's reproducible in the sense that you can see exactly the code that produced your work and it's also a way to keep track of the best models at the best checkpoints and reason about your work yeah i really like it because you you were demoing it to me uh last weekend i was looking into it more and one i really like because it is so low overhead it is it's really easy to 
start to use and you can see value from it immediately. And and then you showed me the notebook API. Like you said, it's a, a programmable TensorBoard. And I remember when TensorBoard even first came out and this was a huge revolution in how me and my coworkers did things because prior to that, you even had to have a bunch of shell scripts for reading the command line output of or saving your metrics in a CSV and making that all yourself. And then you'd have to rsync that from your external instances, EC2 instances, and then load those into Excel, and then you could plot them. And so it's, it is really cool. Once we got TensorBoard, you could see those the loss decreasing automatically in real time. But like you said, if you wanted to add something that, that just wasn't really possible. You'd have to go in and restart. You'd have to add it, add that metric, re- completely restart the run. And even if you just want to do something as simple as change the unit of what you were, were to track. So it's really cool, the notebook API that you guys have with being able to change all those things inside of a Python notebook, which of course is the de facto do anything Python environment for data scientists and MLEs. Yeah, I like that you say that it's easy to get started and see results immediately. I think that's that's the hard thing about building tools for machine learning compared to building like, I don't know, like a little JavaScript framework for styling your checkboxes or something, is that it takes a while to train a model and and get the results so that you can play with these new tools. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that it's, it was fast for you to see some value of this. Mm-hmm. You said before that you view this as a platform for others to build on top of, so you can use this tool that, and this kind of solves the abstraction of, not, not solves, but it, it creates an abstraction of not having to go back and find those models that had the best run. It eliminates a lot of the previous tasks that people had to automate manually. And it gives some amount of a common language, so to speak, for if you wanted to say, I don't know, if, if many people, you can imagine that if many people are using this tool, then you can have like help on, oh, I want to do this inside of the notebook API or, or something else. What else would you imagine that people could build on top of this or if you yourself had a like a longer term vision for things that you could build on top of it yeah that's a good question that part of why we built it the way we did was to keep it small enough that it can be easily extended and integrated with whatever sort of heterogeneous systems people have already for example, I think it's really interesting to think about deploying things to production at the moment. I feel like there's a sort of a disconnect between the usually the researcher or data scientist to build a model and then they might send that repository or that S3 bucket over to someone who puts this into production. That happens in, in a bunch of different ways in different companies. But often what happens then is that you lose this connection between the thing that is in production and how it was actually trained and what data it was trained on and what hyperparameters were used and so on. So it would be really cool to be able to use Replicate inside a CI style environment to check out a specific 
experiment or a, a checkpoint or a thing that was trained automatically and then you have some hook there to get the latest model that was trained and put that, put that in production that particular model file but you still have this id that then ties that back to the training pipeline that produced that artifact so that if something goes wrong you can go and say that oh okay there was a there was drift in in the data on that night and therefore I can see on my online metrics now that this model performed worse and I can actually reason about why it performed worse rather than this just being a black box that this model came from somewhere but we don't really know where and uh, something went wrong and we don't really know what went wrong. So that's something that we're um, thinking about how we can make that um, process better through uh, automatically tracking lineage of different model versions over time and maybe also some way of, of connecting to this to some A-B testing systems that people have, let, maybe letting them, giving them the hooks so that they can build this integration easier. So that's one particular thing that we're thinking a lot about at the moment. Interesting. It's How does it work when you want to have those multiple systems using the same repository? Like how would you have some sort of hosted or like common replicate, not service too heavyweight of a description, but like a shared JSON file that you have that people that is then pulled when replicate first loads. And then from there, they can pull that model from production. So at the moment, we don't have any server or any sort of backend system at all. It's all of the storage is on whatever bucket that either GCS or S3 that you have access to. And that's deliberate so that if people want to integrate this into a CI system, that CI system probably has access to the S3 or the, the EC2 environment that it's living in already. So it has access to that S3 bucket. So you don't have to mess with permissions to some external system. All you have to do is just pass in the name of that bucket to the replicate command line. And then uh, it'll go to that bucket using the permissions that you have set up already and fetch those files. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that yeah, that is a good solution on on the back end, not having to have some sort of custom solution that just piggybacking off of what yeah, people are already trying to use. That's really interesting. How would you imagine that this connects to a broader tracking system of monitoring and uh in production? So uh, a big problem that a lot of people have is, like you said, your data will drift and then you it's hard to sometimes connect what is running in production with the exact thing that was trained. Oftentimes, again, the state of the art here is a spreadsheet where you have your model name in production next in the same column as the commit hash. You do have to backtrack across, sometimes across multiple teams because the person putting into production is not necessarily the same person who built that and is not necessarily the same person who is monitoring the drifts in those data sources. So I guess how, and of course, a lot of people use different tools to connect those different teams. How would you imagine that having a common model ID connects into all of those different things? Yeah, it's a good question. <clears throat> and and honestly, it's a question that we have some ideas about. Maybe there's a way to attach metadata to an experiment after it's finished training so that you can, in your production monitoring system, you can then send some 
information back to Replicate to say that in the actual ongoing online test now, this is the current performance and you can attach that after the fact to that original model inside that three bucket. But this is one of those questions that I don't think we can really figure out ourselves, just Ben and I, because it's like you say, like everyone is doing this differently. Some companies have quite big mature systems for uh, tracking their uh, running models. Other people use more uh, manual processes for this. So really, we want to talk to people and get input from people who do this day to day in different companies to really figure out, is there a general solution for this? Or is it it more of a building, pluggable, making it easy for people to plug in to replicate using their own systems, they're building little glue themselves? Or is there something we can do here to a a more general solution? Maybe that involves building a backend service, or maybe that involves, I don't know, Otter um, storage on S3 or something like that. But really, we want to talk to people like you and, and other people to figure out what could be a what could be a solution for this that fits with the most possible people's workflows and, and systems. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you have a I already kind of asked this question, but I'll like at least you reframe it a little bit more. Is there you did say that this was quite a small tool that you intend for others to build off of once. And again, I, I understand if you might not know the answer to this question, but what is next after that? So once you have a like a, a really decent working solution for this, an MVP, so to speak, what would be the next steps uh, for you for Replicate? Yeah, so we it's all open source, actually, the tool. And on GitHub, we have a roadmap. It's on the projects tab on the GitHub repository, uh, where we put together some ideas of things that we think would be interesting, focusing more on reproducibility so that you can have a, a, maybe a dockerized environment with that you can just take someone else's model and it'll just run. You don't have to mess around with system dependencies. Maybe it's a GUI. I think a lot of people actually really gooist, even if um, the programmable tensor board design is nice. If you want to do more advanced meta analysis, maybe you just want a um, GUI that just works out of the box. And there's a bunch of other things on that roadmap, but that roadmap is something that Ben and I put together just thinking out loud as it's more of a discussion point than really a, a fixed future for the tool. And one thing, Ben, he used to be at Docker before he built uh, Docker Compose. And at Docker, they had, I think it was weekly or bi-weekly design meetings with users of Docker in the community where anyone could join that meeting and just provide input and uh, use cases and designs and requirements. And then the team at Docker would take those and, and they would actually go and build the thing that people wanted rather than the thing, thing that they thought that people wanted. And we're going to try something similar. So on now on Friday, that might be after this or before this is aired, we're going to do the first design meeting with a group of people, early users of the tool. And then we're going to try to grow that so that anyone who is using the tool can come in and get hard. And I think that the really good ideas are not going to come from Ben and I, I think they will come from people in the community who are actually doing machine learning day-to-day and using this tool and and 
coming up with or thinking of problems in in their real world environment. Yeah, I think building in the open like that and taking so many suggestions from the community is such a great idea. And you said that you had spent a lot of the past year talking to people who would be the users of this tool for the other tools that you had uh, done tried to do before this. Were there some, based on your prior experience, having put some of, uh, done some of these things, what, what was like the most surprising thing that you not necessarily wouldn't have considered before talking to all these people? Yeah, that's a good question. I think coming from software engineering, and this is something that I saw in my team at Spotify as well, is that we are very keen to try new tools. As soon as they get put up on Hack and Use, we drop what we're doing and we want to play around with this tool because it's like a hobby for us in a sense. But for a lot of data science and machine learning people there, the thing that they drop everything they're doing for is is a, a new transformer architecture gets published on the archive. So tools are more just like a, a tool that you use to get the job done more than a, a sort of an exciting, fun thing that you play around with. So that's a little surprising, I think, for both of us <clears throat> being people who get excited by, by new tools. And as soon as the new Emacs version is released, I just drop what I'm doing for half a day and just install it. So that, that's something that we have to work on. Like, how do you message things differently to that different audience who might not be as excited about new tools? I'm trying to think of what else has been surprising. The the prevalence of spreadsheets, I think, is one of those like concrete things that I thought I was being extremely stupid and I was looking forward to to talking to people and like hearing what, what is the actual solution to this. And I feel like everyone had the same question for me. Okay, so what, but okay, I use a spreadsheet, but what should I actually use? So it's that yeah, and there's a few of those things like the whole R syncing code process and Things that you think working in your little bubble, in your little company, you feel like this must just be, we just, we must be do, doing things stupidly and there must be a better solution in the big companies. But actually, I think we're all working the same way and it's fine. It's what everyone else is doing. Yeah, you kind of, uh, just the, the first point of maybe people not getting so excited about the tools or data sciences says data scientists and other people who train models regularly not getting excited about new tools. Do you think it is a function of what they're doing in their jobs or some other fundamental reason? Or do you think it is just because the tools that we've seen so far aren't just not necessarily that exciting and not that useful? Yeah, I don't know. I I think it's, I think it has to do with if you are a software engineer and you build tools then you get excited and inspired by other tools. If you work on machine learning, the thing that inspires and excites you are the the papers that get published at conferences. And those are the things that you in your job will build on in the next few months and have fun with. So maybe it's just a a difference in job description and, and interest of the people who do their different jobs. Maybe it's a cultural thing as well. I don't know if there's, maybe there's less of a culture, especially if you come from academia, where a lot of people I used to work with came straight from their PhDs or maybe a couple of internships and worked as professional machine learning people. 
and in academia, my colleagues, I used to have at City University, really smart people, uh, a lot of them actually quite interested in the latest software engineering developments as well. But there's less of that culture in academia, I feel like, of talking about tools and showing each other the, the latest refactoring tools and using the, the latest text editors, although I'm using a 40-year-old text editor. But but yeah, maybe it's a cultural thing from the difference between academia and industry. I'm not really sure, to be honest. I think it's an interesting question. Yeah, that make, that kind of does make sense. What you said earlier in the answer of software engineers build software, and so they're more likely to build tools uh, for themselves, whereas data scientists build models and don't necessarily have the have the software experience in order to build a, a really great automation for themselves. We went over the uh, a few things that you think people will that you were surprised by. What were there other things that you learned from people about a better way to do something that you previously didn't think was there for? So I guess to maybe reframe it a little bit, the you said that most people were looking for a way to do things and that no one kind of really figured it out. But was there a particular thing that, that someone did have figured out that you think would be better if it was shared with everyone else? There, there was one guy who had a really quite disciplined but really nice workflow where he uh, logged all of his experiments, hyperparameters. I can't remember. I think he he wrote, like you said, like he wrote a CSV file, but then he had a notebook where he used pandas to load all of this in. And then he kept that notebook throughout his experimentation and just did all of the plots and tables and everything inside that single notebook for the duration of his project. And it took a bit of work to keep this up to date, but in the end he had this really nice record of everything he had done during that project so that he could remind himself and share it with his team and for future reference as well. So that, that was really nice. And that was also sort of part of an inspiration for our Python API where it, it, it just feels like a nice way to keep track of what you're doing in inside that single persistent notebook throughout the project. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I'm really interested in is knowledge management in organizations. And it seems like this is much more of a problem in machine learning because one, the field is moving so fast and a lot of the knowledge isn't yet in books or online. It's just in practitioners' heads. And it does seem that right now, because we don't have a like a single source of truth for what what the model was, what its metrics were, it's really hard to say, okay, for this exact thing, this is what I did, this is why I did it. And versus in software, you do have those git commits, you can write in your commit message, this is what I did, this is why it works better. But it is really cool to just to think about the potential of things like that, where you can, because you have that source of truth, the single model number or version, unique ID in Replicate, that you're then able to use that everywhere, including in your documentation of why you did things so that people in the future can go view that and learn from it. Yeah, that, that reminds me actually another slightly surprising thing that we heard multiple times was people come into companies and the person before left in the machine learning team 
and they are stuck there for weeks or sometimes months trying to figure out what they did and how they did it. And in a software project, I think you're right. I think we have ways of organizing the code. We have just practices for commit messages and filing issues. And you can come in to a new project that you haven't seen before and you know which things to open to figure out how it got to where it is. But yeah, that doesn't really exist in machine learning. I feel like a lot of it is just handwritten scraps on notebooks uh, next to the computer of the person who writes the, the model. So yeah, just things like where is this model stored? This might be a arg parse parameter that someone pa passes to the model at training time to save this model in this S3 bucket in this format and coming into to a project and just figuring out where. Okay, so this model was obviously trained a bunch of times, but where are the actual artifacts and where are the results and metrics for those artifacts? That can be a really hard, sometimes impossible thing to figure out. Sometimes we actually heard people who came into or who left companies and then the person who came after them had to just rewrite everything from scratch. And that just seems like a crazy waste of time and money for companies to have to do that. I have personal experience of, with that where we were moving the entire company stack over from, over from, instead of, I guess we would, didn't have a structured way of thinking about which framework to use. Some people were using TensorFlow, some people were using Keras with either TensorFlow or Fiano, some people were using Torch, and there was one model that was working in Torch, and we wanted to move everything over to over to over to PyTorch and to MXNet. And we just couldn't get this thing to replicate. And we had yeah, we had no idea what was happening in this. There was some Torch, Lua Torch specific operators that were happening. And when we tried to convert it directly into a universal model like onyx it just wasn't performant at all in a different in different framework or when we were running in production yeah i think everyone has some sort of story like this where that all stems from not being able to track things properly yeah and where where do you even start with that like how do you figure out what has actually changed between this model and this torch model i don't know that's probably outside of the scope of replicate but at least maybe we, a tool replicate maybe can give you some sort of foundation to, at least you can disregard this whole class of problems. And now you can focus on maybe the, the difference between the model building blocks that you created rather than having to worry about exactly where the model was stored or the performance that they initially got when they trained it on their previous framework. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And something interesting that I was talking with someone else about was the potential for a, you can treat deep learning as building blocks that you can put together as long as the tensor inputs are the same. And you already mentioned in leaky abstractions about how we don't even have a something to validate those tensor shapes. And it strikes me that you could have something that is built off of Replicate where you can include the inputs and outputs of the model and even break it down into even smaller parts. So you might have a pre-trained, I don't know, GPT-2 and then just exclude the task-specific heads. But then if you know that the inputs and outputs of each 
of each layer, then you could upload those separately as as model pieces. I don't know what you'd call it. And then later on, you'd be able to pull those in at the time that you need them, connect them together, train them. And then that could be maybe a better way of doing shared weights across your org instead of the, I don't know, really terrible solutions that I think a lot of people are, are doing now. I don't know if anyone's figured that one out yet. Yeah, I love that. We, we were thinking a little bit about that when we built that initial um, uh, CI system where people uh, could publish their models and anyone can run an inference on them. But imagine if instead of just having to publish the latest segmentation model, maybe you have a, a Linformer or some other sort of component of a larger model that you could publish as a standalone uh, piece that anyone can pull into their model. And then it differentiates through that thing. And you don't actually, you don't have to worry about the dependencies. You can imagine a future where things like a, a piece of uh, TensorFlow can be integrated in a piece of PyTorch. And so you don't have to rewrite everything and you don't have to create these six, 700 line model files. Uh, where you're just duplicating code from other projects, you could actually just load this as a library and it, and it would save the weight somehow as part of the same artifact, even though the code comes from a completely different uh, framework. I think that future is really exciting. And it would allow us, I think, to think at the higher level of, of abstraction where we combine components rather than having to understand kernel sizes and what, if you put the batch norm before or after the relive and things like that. Yeah, that's super interesting, connecting it with the archive paper itself. And you could imagine a, especially when you add in the differentiation and I'm, I'm just imagining some sort of GitHub for ML models where you can, like you say, have that, say, yeah, GPT-2, and then people are submitting pull requests of the data that they had trained a specific task on, and they would submit both the weights of their specific task head or the uh, final layers of that, and also the, the, I guess, the diff of the weights. I don't know how that would work. Of And then from there, you could have that run in CI where you see, do these weight updates to the common model actually do make the all the other tasks that this was meant for better? Does it improve their metrics as well? Yeah, exactly. And, and that's one of those analogies from uh, more traditional software engineering that I think would fit really well with machine learning as well. Like you can also imagine something like, like a forking system. Someone posted a tweet a while ago where they had photoshopped a um, GitHub page of a, I think it was like the original Transformer paper. And then a fork of that Transformer paper is BERT and another fork is GPT-2 and then GPT-3 is a fork of GPT-2. And so you could track the lineage of research as well as the code and to understand how these models were, were created and the ideas that went into them. I think that sort of thing would be great both in, in terms of just use, you know, the practical use cases, but also just understanding the research. Yeah, the the more I think about it, the more uh, excited I get in, in terms of just how, what that will enable, because of course, it's one thing to simply save people time, which is nice. You don't have to be finicky with your, like you said, your CUDA versions. You can just, that's all just, that's a fixed abstraction where you can just use it. Uh, and then it's another thing for what that sort of fundamental abstraction can can enable. Are there other 
like far in the future things that you think would really exciting that could come out of as a result of replicate and the the follow-on tools that you would imagine would be built uh, yeah i mean one one thing that we have been thinking about i don't know if it made it into the roadmap because it's maybe too far ahead in the future but but like having like you say a github like place where people's models and code and papers all get published and they're all connected to each other and they are composable like that the feels like we're going in a direction now where we have figured out that okay maybe a ResNet block is good enough and we just duplicate that a bunch of times but then we end up with these pre-trained models for one domain and then now we want to do stuff in multiple domains at the same time maybe we want to have an agent that that understands the the concept of a kitchen uh, and it can read things on uh, the milk packet and it can plan its way through the space. So it's all of these different modalities that it has to understand. So th- there are different models for all of these things. And maybe you can just replace the, the text understanding model inside that system with the latest state of art. And then all of a sudden that whole kitchen navigation system improves just by being able to plug the, these things in. I think something like that, I think seems to be a direction that we're heading and yeah that's super interesting stuff that could happen there i think yeah the multimodalities are really cool it's obviously a very young field still but do you know there's any research in terms of composability from pure models to multimodal ones i don't know i should do some literature review on that actually i haven't seen anything and there was a podcast I listened to, Machine Learning Street Talk, a while ago. They had an interview with someone who was working on multimodalities for agents-based systems. But it seems like it's still pretty nascent and new, that field. So I'm not sure how much people are working on that yet. It's really, yeah, really cool to to talk about things like this because it's, I think a lot of people couldn't have imagined the all the tooling that we would have now for software and it's of course we don't know what the future of ml tooling itself is going to be either but we can certainly dream about things that could be true in the future that that would enable really cool use cases and also decrease reproducibility problems and then enable even more open sharing like you build off of open source libraries right now and of course in machine learning you can still build off of those open source models, but yeah, like you said, you're just not able to really build off of those weights and then pull request them back in to make everyone's life better. Yeah, that's the dream. Yeah, that would be. That sounds like a great future. I hope we can, you know, provide a little bit of of, of that puzzle. <laughs> All right, and to start to to wrap this up, it's is there a topic that you that we didn't cover that you think would be interesting to, to talk about in terms of machine learning tools, where the field is going in terms of the engineering. I think we covered quite a lot of ground here. <laughs> I, think it's, I think this is probably good. Yeah. I no, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Awesome. And like I said before, it's the replicate tool is, is really cool. You guys have a really well-designed website for it too. Uh, it's not just a, sparse github readme where you're you're struggling to understand how the pieces fit together you have a really nice section on how all of it works and all of the different ways that you could possibly use it so do you want to shout out the website and the github repo and all that 
Yeah, uh, can you give a shout out to the designer as well, Mark Hurrell, a fantastic designer. He worked on the gov.uk website, so really glad to be friends with him. The website is replicate.ai and the repo is replicate slash replicate on GitHub. And I also want to give a shout out to this community meeting series that we're going to kick off now on Friday. So anyone who's interested in versioning and reproducibility at large, we love would love to have you in there and, and discuss these things. We're going to be talking about both sort of general roadmappy things, get people's ideas on, on where this should be going, but also specific things like how can you version data in a way that is general across the different domains that people are working in and yeah, how do you reproduce models and um, both the training time and inference time? And how do you connect things to online tests? And there's all of these sort of specific point things that we want to maybe bring into this tool or just talk about and, and see how people can build things on top of Replicate to solve these problems. would love to see people in those meetings. They'll be linked from the website as well. And join the Discord yeah, it... and, and talk to us. We're, we're friendly. Yep, that's just what I was going to ask if there was a, like a single place where people can learn more about if they want to get on the email list or like you said in the Discord to hear about those community design discussions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we have an email list. It's not, I don't think we posted anything on it yet, but Discord is really the, the place we hang out every day and talk. Awesome. So now to move into the rapid fire questions mm. that I ask all of our guests at the end. The first is, what do you do for fun outside of work? I play music. I play accordion and guitar and it's really fun. And I write some songs and I record some songs. And yeah, that's my always been my hobby. That's cool. Is there, do you have a SoundCloud where we can all go and listen? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do. It's Andreas Johnson on SoundCloud. It's a mixed bag of techno and black metal and uh, folk music <laughs> interesting combination that's fascinating also i'll definitely have to check this, some of those out that's that's cool next what book or books do you most often recommend to other people could be technical or non-technical I, when I did my undergrad, I read The Art of Unix Programming, which just like, that made me define how I think about writing software, really. And I reread it recently as part of just designing this user interface for Replicate. It's a really well-written book and classic. And Eric Raymond, who wrote it, is a bit of a nutter nowadays, but he also wrote a lesser known book called The Art of Unix Usability. That's all um, public on his website. User interface designs from uh, the old Unix days, but I think a lot of them are still applicable. A lot of sort of case studies about how long people are willing to wait for things, data-driven usability design, really interesting book. And another book that I really enjoyed in from music, music psychology, it's called Sweet Anticipation. It's by David Duran, and it's about how we perceive music in terms of what we expect to happen in the music and how getting those expectations fulfilled is the thing that gives us joy from listening to music. And that I think that's applicable to a lot of other types of art and activities as well. It's a great book. Interesting. Yeah, the the Unix recommendation, that's the second time that someone has oh, really? <laughs> recommended that to me. Yeah, so I'm totally going to have to go and go and check that one yeah. out. 
next, is there a machine learning application or use case that you think is overlooked or underrated by the community? I was thinking about this question you sent it over before. The thing that I'm most excited about is how can we make uh, machine learning models faster to train so that we reduce this iteration cycle. And I don't think it's a particularly overlooked topic because it seems to be the hottest topic right now, but the whole lottery ticket hypothesis, there are sub-networks within networks that are 10 times smaller that are as performant as the big network. So I think that sort of research direction is really um, interesting. I think once we can train models in an order of magnitude less time, I think we'll be just better at our jobs and have more fun. Yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned that actually. I was just in my at work having to figure out how to run a model much faster at inference time. And we went through a bunch of options and I was looking all, into all the literature on knowledge distillation where you have a yeah, a student network, and then it's being taught by the teacher, which is, the, of course, the much bigger one. Uh, but it would be, like you said, extremely nice if we could just get to that student network right away without having to go through the, the dual process. Exactly. I remember when I started my PhD, I was looking at Echo State networks, which were quite popular back then. And there are this, I don't know if you've come across them, there's this sort of recurrent pool of pool of neurons that, that are connected with random weights. And the weights inside the network are stable they don't change and then you take readings from all of those neurons at the after you run through this it's a time series prediction task usually and then you just have a single linear layer from all of those activations those really non-linear chaotic behavior and then you just take a take that linear pr- um, projection and that actually works pretty well as a as a time series, both classifier and for time series generation. And that's one of those things that's really fast to train, quite low sort of computational complexity, even though it's really complex, the the interactions inside that network. And we don't have a good way of really taming these networks yet. But it feels like those sort of ideas of of having a lot of complexity hidden away and then you the thing that you train is maybe like a, a subset of the thing that is happening inside the network that i don't know if that's something that it's related to the lottery ticket hypothesis as well yeah wow. that's what is that called again that's really interesting it's called echo state networks they're part of reser- reservoir computing i think people have tried to deploy these on electronic chaotic electronic circuits and like dna and all all sorts of weird things where you have chaotic behavior and you take some measurements and you use those measurements to as a machine learning system yeah i've been thinking about it now particularly for financial time series which of course is as chaotic as it gets although i don't know if you can input some of those because it's non-stationary as well which makes all your theoretical guarantees completely go out the window but i'll definitely have to look into that what is an important truth that very few people agree with you on in my career i've never had a boring job for more than three two three months i think and i think it is possible to have fun all the time at work uh, and i think a lot of people maybe wouldn't agree with that but i think it's it's possible to find things that you enjoy doing even if you're doing supposedly quite boring programming work you can always spend some time and automating something and, and making it fun for yourself so 
that's something that I've maybe figured out how to do in my career and, and really enjoyed. Yeah. Uh, God, I can't remember who told me about this, who uh, came up with this idea, but it was the concept of you're able to find like the, it's a cliche that everyone says happiness is not like the end goal. It's not something that you get to. It's the, the path along the way. And the real uh, challenge isn't like how to get to your goal. The real challenge is how do you make it sustainable so that you can keep doing it over and over again? Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Yeah, I like that. And lastly, what advice would you give to someone just entering the field of either from as a data scientist, training models, or as a machine learning engineer, putting these into production? Again, I think just try to have fun with the stuff that you're building and build little side projects. And if you're in, I was always interested in music. So when I was learning about machine learning during my undergrad, I built little robots that generated music just outside of the curriculum. And I think that's really important. There are so many fun things you can do once you start thinking creatively about these things. And that's really how, how I've enjoyed learning and kept learning and wanted to learn more. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And that, so we already shouted out Replicate, of course. So Replicate AI, go join the newsletter, join the Discord. And if people wanted to follow you specifically, are you on, uh, is there social media that you have? Or not, No, not really. I'm, I'm on GitHub. That's where I, that's, that's where I do most of my stuff nowadays. And yeah, I, Andreas Johnson on GitHub. Awesome. As always, I will put all the links into the show notes below so that listeners can go check that out. Andreas, this was a really fun com conversation, especially the parts where we talk about what the future of all these tools could potentially lead to. It's super exciting that uh, you're building at least one of the base elements that would enable all of this. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, this was super fun. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. It is a huge honor to be able to bring you these conversations. If you want to learn more about anything mentioned in this podcast, visit our website, mlengineered.com to view detailed show notes and sign up for our email list, where every week I send out the best of what I've found that will help you become a better machine learning researcher, engineer, or entrepreneur. That's mlengineered.com. Thank you.